your host, Bill Real. If we understood what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Because as people went to different stages, there would be programs that would take you right along and celebrate you every step of the way. There's this old Indian tradition. Maybe I'll leave this in as we're having this conversation. There's this old Indian tradition where the grown-ups dress up and they scare the hell out of the Native American children. I forget which tribe this is. Maybe this yeah. might even be like Peru or something. But they scare the hell out of them. And then uh, when they get to be of age, say 12 years old, they, they beat them one more time. They come in the middle of the night, scare the hell out of them, beat them up, and then take off their mask and show them that they're just the adults in the society. And then the kid, that kid then starts to put the mask on and do the same thing uh, to the other young ones, which is kind of traumatizing. But it also is this rite of passage that gives them the chance to become adults and to see behind the curtain. Um, I wouldn't recommend us doing it that way, but... (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of the Almost Awakened Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you. I'm joined again uh, by Anthony Miller and Jana Spangler. Uh, if the two of you would just say hi and maybe uh, maybe give us uh, just a really brief intro, uh, maybe even shorter than the last time, as much as you want to say, I guess, though, uh, because people hopefully have listened to episode one. If you haven't, everybody, go listen to episode one first. Uh, that sets up the conversation for this. But uh, uh, Anthony, if you want to go first today and uh, give us a brief intro. Thank you. Um, This is Anthony Miller, and I'm coming to you from Billings, Montana. And uh, I've known Bill for about five years, and Jana, in about two months, it'll be five years. And um, I met Bill and Jana uh, as part of my developmental process of going through a faith transition and uh, they become dear friends. And the things that we'll talk about today contributed to uh, helping me navigate uh, my, the painful uh, part, the suffering part of my faith transition. And so I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Love it. Jana, go ahead, my friend. Um, yeah, so I'm Jana Spangler, and I'm in Holiday, Utah. Um, I am an integral professional life coach with Symmetry Solutions and a graduate of the Living School, um, uh, where I, I studied contemplative Christianity, which uh, was one of the things that really helped me to pull me out of my own kind of messy faith crisis, faith journey as well. So I just love this subject, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. I can't have these conversations by myself. I need other smart people who understand these general concepts, have read a little bit on Eastern thought, and in some regard, read a lot, and uh, are are kind of able to dive into these conversations. And so here we are. This is episode number two. We're using as a backdrop for this uh, Buddhism for Beginners by Jack Cornfield. And I did think it was strange. I want to mention this in the beginning. Most of the time, I think the four noble truths are introduced first. And then this idea of wise action is kind of this process to get to uh, being at peace with your life. And Jack started off with the, um, these, these, the eightfold path, these wise uh, actions, these uh, right actions, right thoughts, right behavior type stuff, using our senses to make the world a better place. Um, any thoughts from you guys on why he started off that way? Do you guys have any thoughts on along those lines? I, I, really, I really don't. 
Yeah, I hadn't even noticed that until you just said it, but you're absolutely right. You know, the, the Eightfold Path kind of unfolds from the Four Noble Truths, so. Yeah, I'm, not he just sure why he, mm-hmm, I'm not sure why he tried that. So in episode two, and again, these are, um, I'm saying uh, episode two, but it's it's chapter two in his audible presentation. Each of these is a, a recorded live session where he's standing in front of folks and talking. And this session two uh, is revolving around the Four Noble Truths. And so let's start with the first one. The first Noble Truth is that uh, suffering exists that there is suffering in the world. Uh, maybe I want to open up the conversation, maybe to just talk about the different kinds of ways that uh, suffering shows up because it's not just somebody poking you with a knife. It's, it's a million things. Uh, do one of you guys want to maybe run us through some of the ways in which you feel suffering being present in your own life? Hmm. Well, um, sure. I'll take a stab at that. <laughs> I, um, in my own life, I think that I have suffering, you know, on some level, just about every day. Um, and there's certainly been, there's suffering almost every day in my relationships, um, in the way that I'm showing up, the way that I want my, my kids to be doing things in their life, the way that I want to be moving through my day and accomplishing things. Um, and, uh, when things don't go the way that I think they should go, I tend to, I'm, I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And so things tend to, um, I tend to try to, you know, go back to myself, beat myself up. I'm not good enough. I have that kind of tape running that I'm trying to get rid of. Um, and so I suffer when I think that life isn't going the way it should go. And I should be better than this. I should be able to affect a better result. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Uh, Anthony, any thoughts from you on, on maybe how this shows up uh, to you, my friend? Yeah. So when I was uh, initially introduced to this first noble truth, um, it was pretty stretching for me. It made me uh, uncomfortable the, uh, the faith tradition and the paradigms that I came from before viewed uh, suffering or pain in this life, or maybe trials, as what we might have called it, um, to be a consequence of mortality, um, that we're mortal human beings, that um, there was some sense of a prosperity gospel, in that if we were obedient to commandments and we lived according to particular standards, then we would be blessed and we would be relieved from suffering or pain or trials. Um, another construct was there, there were different kinds of trials. There were trials that we had because we brought them on ourselves, so they were our fault. Um, the next kind of trial or suffering might have been because of the choices of others and free agency allows others to make choices that create these consequences of suffering or trials. And then the third was that maybe we experience something that it's just a test, like the refiner's fire, that, that, that God or divinity was providing us this opportunity to learn, grow, and be tested. And that's why we had those experiences. And and the construct or paradigm that I came from is that this kind of experience of 
suffering or trial um, had some sort of a, it seemed to me, I didn't label it this way, a transactional kind of relationship with existence and divinity. And when I, and when I listened to and read uh, this first noble truth about suffering, it was stretching to me because it's kind of a, it's a different point of view of things. It's not divinity imputing suffering or uh, this transactional relationship of prosperity gospel or the consequences of the choices of others or, or a test or something on us. Um, it, it, it's, it's much simpler than that in that, in that suffering in existence is actually uh, part of existence. We, we, ex- we get older, our bodies don't work the way they need to. Um, there are things that happen you know, because of evolution, things are messy, things happen. And um, what the way this was presented is that there, my sense is that there was a greater sense of surrender into that suffering is part of human existence and, and it's there for us to engage with. And it's just a truth. It's not just something that you, I mean, you can with intention try to bypass or learn from suffering but it's it's less of this transactional relationship so i don't know if i'm explaining that well but that's the stretching part of this first noble truth that was difficult for me to reconcile when i was first introduced to it yeah when when the buddha is sitting underneath the bodhi tree to when he watches kind of the world unfolding in front of him and watching people walk by and do their thing uh in this story, it seems like Buddha becomes aware that, you know, we're doing things to others and it's making them feel pain or discomfort. Um, people are doing things to us and causing us to feel pain or discomfort. We're doing things that are bringing pain and discomfort on ourselves and the universe or God uh, is interacting in some way that the world just unfolds in front of us, causing us uh, discomfort and pain even if nobody's intentionally trying to do something to us or we're intentionally doing it to ourselves. And, and so this idea that it exists, there is suffering and it exists, um, leads us into the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. And I've seen so many words attached uh, to what this is. The word that Jack Cornfield uses is grasping. And I want to kind of start off here and then kind of give you guys a chance to, to add in whenever the world doesn't happen the way I want it to, whenever I feel discomfort or a disturbance inside me, I immediately, especially my old self, immediately want to manipulate the world, uh, push off that which I don't want, hold on to and cling to with white knuckles, those things I'm enjoying and liking. And as they point out and you know, as Jack points out in this episode, uh, in this conversation, that even when things are exactly the way you want them, you're in your head sometimes suffering, wondering how long it'll last and whether you get to hang on to it longer than than you expect it to be, or will it end shorter than than what it's supposed to go? So maybe some friends come over for dinner and you're having the greatest conversation, and suddenly you start worrying, like, oh my goodness, what if what if one of their kids calls and has that issue that they had last time and they have to leave early? Um, it's for me, it shows up. And, and often shows up in unhealthy behaviors that I use as mechanisms to try to get the world to stay the way I want it, 
to bring back the way the world, the way it was when I liked it or to bring the world in new because I'm not enjoying what's happening right now. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the second noble truth that the cause of suffering is this idea of grasping. Uh, yeah, this one, this one hits deep for me <laughs> because I think this is very human, right? Not only do we, uh, do we cling to, to good experience, uh, we want to get rid of the bad experience. We, we don't want to feel discomfort. We are not built to want to feel discomfort or to be comfortable feeling discomfort. Um, and so, I, you know, as, as Jack Kornfield says, that basically you cannot have any freedom if you stay in that posture. Um, that freedom comes from letting go of all of that, which is so counter to our uh, Western kind of world. We are, we are, it's in our DNA to strive and achieve and do, and you're, you're in power. Don't be a victim. Just, you know, keep, keep striving for, for what you want. Um, and so, uh, you know, I noticed that when people start thinking in these ways, it's immediately uncomfortable because it feels like giving up. It feels like somehow you're never going to achieve again. Um, if you, if you are at peace with seeing things the way they are, but there's a subtle difference between those two things that I hope we'll talk about. Um, but uh, yeah, they talk about this, um, you know, the cause of suffering, of suffering being this, this clinging, this grasping that leads to, um, some talk about the three poisons of ignorance, desire, and aversion. So we're always in some sort of way, um, either trying to cling to those good desires, having an aversion to something we don't want, or in ignorance, just not, not being conscious moving in ways that are trying to manipulate, that are trying to, to um, affect the outcome of things. Any thoughts from you, Anthony, there? Yeah, so I really like this part. Uh, he shares sef several different examples, and he also refers to attachment. And for the listener, what I would suggest is... Um, in addition to listening the, to this session, to take a look at Eckhart Tolle's uh, text, uh, an, uh, his book, A New Earth, where Eckhart Tolle talks, uh, he attributes some different meanings to this particular noble truth, although he doesn't call it the noble truth, to my recollection. And he talks about suffering coming from attachment to form. Form being our perceptions of our, our roles, our belonging, our perception of what our identity is, this sense of needing to control things, this sense of self-measurement, comparison to others and so forth. And so, so the, this, this suffering or grasping, uh, at least in part, has a significant relationship to our sense of attachment. So if I go back to what I shared about the first noble truth that su suffering exists, it's everywhere, there's pain, there's also suffering uh, that will distinguish uh, in, a, in a minute with the third noble truth. And then the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is this attachment to form. I would go back to what I had just shared earlier. 
is that is that if if my sense of experience in this life has to do with that there are trials and there are consequences and there's this prosper, transactional prosperity gospel type of relationship that I experience suffering in that I, if I'm measuring myself, if I'm measuring my worth, if I'm measuring my progress based on my experience of suffering, of not getting what I want, of, of my attachment to form, that I'm losing control and that it's not, things aren't turning out the way I think they should. And maybe it's because God isn't blessing me, maybe because God isn't healing me, maybe because darn it, now he decides he wants to test me or something like that. I'm trying to make sense of all these things, this attachment to form and this, what Jack refers to as grasping contributes to this experience of, of suffering. Yeah, I love it. I, and I don't want to go off into the weeds here because I think, uh, I think there's so much overlap, Jana, we, we were talking before Anthony came on that all of these wisdom teachers seem to be kind of playing in the same sandbox, whether it's um, Michael Singer and the untethered soul, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Richard Rohr, uh, Wilbur and, and spiral dynamics. Uh, I'm just, I mean, you know, folks that I've listened to on the Joe Rogan podcast, just having conversations about uh, even psychedelic drugs and other kinds of things, like all these places where we're playing around in our consciousness and I don't want to, again, I don't want to go off in the weeds, but I want to mention briefly shadow work, which is this idea that when we're, when we're younger, things happen to us and they happen to us different than they happen to our neighbor or a friend or the person down the street or the person in another country. And we form uh, expectations of how the world should work. And now we get older and something happens. Um, my kids are too loud. I grew up in a house of two children. Me and my brother were four years apart. So it was almost... We were so far apart, it was almost like my mom raised two different kids at two different times. And um, really quiet household, really orderly household. I marry my wife. She's one of eight children. We, she, we decide to, by we, I mean her, we decide to have four kids, right? And, uh, and so we have four children, and they're all close together, two years apart, essentially, each of them. And my house is noisy, much more than I had growing up. And so when things got loud, even when they're playing and they're happy and they're having fun, I get these disturbances inside me and the disturbance on the first half of life. You don't even know how to name it. You don't even know what it is. You don't even know that it's that the problem is internal to you. You can only interpret it as the problem is outside of you and you need to resolve the problem. And this disturbance is the suffering that I think we're talking about. And so when this disturbance happens, I then perceive the world as, ah, I don't want the world this way. And so I start yelling at my kids or I start asking my wife to quiet them down or, and my wife's like, Hey, they're just playing. They're just kids. They're having fun. And I can't handle it because this isn't, this isn't the, my expectation of the world. And so it shows up when I say shadow work, it shows up in a lot of unhealthy mechanisms that we have used because to some degree they work. And to some degree on the first half of life, they're failing us miserably they're causing us trauma and they're causing other people trauma through our actions. But we're, but I would manipulate the world to try to go away because I wasn't liking it. Or I would try to manipulate the world to bring back in what I do like. And, and that, that need to resolve that disturbance. And I should say for people who are recognizing this as we're talking, 
that disturbance feels so damn strong and serious that in your head, the best option is to act unhealthy because the disturbance needs to go away and it's the only way you know how to handle it. What, what is going to be suggested here over the next several episodes is to do something different. And we're at least going to kind of talk about what that is uh, and then spend, I think, the rest of these presentations talking about how we can get better at, at sitting with that disturbance and letting it be and then recognizing that that really is the fastest way for it to go away and to begin to move authentically through the world in a way that you like yourself as you interact with the world. Um, thoughts from you guys on that before we move on to the third noble truth. Anything there that comes up for you? Oh, absolutely. I um, I think this is such a key piece. I, I heard you mention the first half of life. This is such a key piece of moving into second half of life is doing that internal shadow work and noticing what's going on inside us rather than most of us go through our lives trying to manipulate the outside world. I see this in myself. I see this in my clients all the time where we're just really, really wanting to control the external. And we actually imagine that the things that are disturbing us are the out external forces. So, you know, if I'm upset with my husband, if I'm upset with someone else in my life, then I just think, you know, if that person would just do X, Y, Z, then all would be well for me. <laughs> and, and actually it's putting, um, it's putting, it's giving all of my power away. It's giving my power away to somebody else for the way that they act to make me happy. And it's, it's amazing how automatic that is for most of us. Um, so with, you know, this is where we get that, um, the phrase I'm sure everyone has heard that hurting people hurt people. Because when we are feeling that disturbance, we do tend to act in an outward way to try to fix it. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Come back to me. Yeah, it, it will. It will. Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jack talks about unhealthy states that come out of this kind of grasping that we're talking about. He refers to jealousy, anxiety, hatred, addiction, possessiveness, and shamelessness. Um, I would add um, that we experience, you were describing, Bill, frustration uh, in terms of not having th this grasping experience. Frustration, as well as fear, gets manifest typically with anger. So anger being a secondary emotion, often born out of fear, sometimes born out of frustration. And so like Jana is talking about, we experience this suffering, we experience from grasping, uh, you know, this attachment to form, as Eckhart Tolle would say, and, and then our reaction often gets manifest in, in unhealthiness, in dysfunction, in anger, and then we cause suffering to other people because we act out uh, with anger uh, born out of frustration and fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've got it back. So <laughs> the th where I wanted to go with that was to talk about our own projections on other people. Um, so often the way that this manifests is, you know, when someone else is bothering me, um, what I don't recognize 
is that what is bothering me is something that is deeply ingrained within me. And I am projecting that. I'm projecting my assumptions. I'm projecting the way that I see the world onto somebody else and thinking that they are seeing the world exactly the way that I am. Richard Rohr says, we don't see the world the way it is. We see the world the way we are. And that that is, it seems like just a simple thing, but it is uh, life shifting if we can learn that. If we can learn that um, what the way we are experiencing the world is largely what we are projecting on other people. And we all do this in our own particular way. I don't know if you guys have talked about Enneagram on this program, but I've, I find it to be a really, really effective tool in, um, in doing shadow work, in trying to figure out our patterns, the way that we avoid pain. Um, I think of all of the kind of personality tests or or um, way typologies of the way that we kind of move through the world, it seems to be the more most robust when it comes to that kind of work of trying to recognize the patterns within ourselves that we're largely unconscious of in that first half of life. Yeah, and and the idea that you're for someone who's still trying to kind of figure out what these terms mean. When you say like people, we all come to an experience having a different set of expectations and different perceptions of how the world works. Just a really brief story. Two friends of mine, husband, wife, um, the, the, the wife made uh, potatoes the day before. And I told this on the podcast a few weeks ago, that told, made potatoes the day before and um, they were good. The family liked dinner. It was great. Moved on to the next day. The husband goes, hey, I think, I think I'm going to make potatoes again. So she comes in, she starts helping. She cuts them up the way she was cutting them the night before. She starts adding things. He's like, what are you doing? She's like, I thought you wanted potatoes. He goes, I do. I'm, I'm making them. So he starts making, trying to jump in. And she's still like, no, no, I got to put this. You got to put that. And suddenly they're in an argument and he storms out of the kitchen and she's left making potatoes on her own. And, and the reality was they did, they, they were looking past each other. And I think this is so often happening in relationships where there's some annoyance or some tension is you come to an experience really having a completely different perception. She thought he liked the potatoes from the night before so much that he would definitely want those same potatoes again. He liked the potatoes the night before, but he wanted something different. He was going to make them in his own way and do something completely different than what she had done the evening before. They simply understood the situation differently. And by the end of, you know, 40 minutes of, of this going back and forth, now they're storming off. They're not going to talk to each other. They're tired of each other's bullshit. And now they're angry, right? And the reality is like, these were two good human beings who, who came to this situation uh, there ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's just you and me and we just disagree. Right. And that's, what's often I think happening in these little battles inside people's homes, because as we talk about suffering and it being all these extreme things, right. There's, you know, rape and murder and the child sex trade business and all that stuff out there. That's just evil and horrible, but it's really just two good people having disagreements in a home um, where I specifically am constantly sitting with the, this, these principles and trying to become better. Um, anyway, just this idea that I hope listeners pick up on, it really is these small little tensions in your life. And the moment you start to perceive that the person across from you isn't a bad person, they just come with a completely different set of experiences and expectations. And so your words don't mean what you think they mean to the other person. Your body language doesn't mean what you think it means to the other person. Your 
what you think should be the right answer to a problem may only be one right answer or may have right and wrong and someone else may have a different angle and want to interact in that situation completely different and you want to label it as bad but in reality it's just another way of being human and showing up and when you start to see these things as they are you can now come in with this small little pause and the whole world can shift um in positive ways. Uh, anything else before we close out? I, I do want to mention too, just Jack Cornfield said this quote, this idea of the cause of suffering. And, you know, here we are all the way on the second half of life now. Uh, at least I think I can say that safely for the three of us. And um, when it comes to overcoming this suffering, Jack says to overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain entrusted to you. That's a really kind and I think um, stern way of telling somebody that you can start to do it different now. Now you hear me. Now you're responsible. Now you can show up in the world differently. But you also just did what you could do. Like you were just human and you just showed up in the world the way the way you, that moment brought you to it. And so you can't shouldn't beat yourself up. But now it's time to start doing something different. Um, he also mentions this idea of forgiveness. He says... The trying to manipulate—I'll get to his quote—but but the trying to manipulate that which has already been done. He says, "Forgiveness is to give up all hope of a better past." I like that one too. This idea that if we're going to forgive people, the real what really is going on is we're just we're just letting go of the world needing to be different. When I hear somebody forgave someone who murdered their kid, on the first half of life, I couldn't understand that. Now I get it. They they just accept it. It just is, and we're just going to move on. Um, man, I think some of this stuff is so hard to get on that first half. And then he's, and then the last thing here, he says, let go and be with things as they are. Um, the third noble truth, uh, and before I get into that, anything else? I guess I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. Anything else before I do that? Yeah, I would I would say this. There's a, there was a little saying that, a little prayer that we used to do at the living school that I think is very appropriate here that, helps me to get into this kind of mind frame. Um, and it's just for all that has been, thank you for all that will be. Yes. It's such a simple phrase, but when I'm really in a struggle, sometimes I will say that and it will bring to my mind what it is that I'm struggling against. Um, mm. So, and then the, the other thing I just want to say is that he talks about here, and I think this is an important distinction because like I said earlier, sometimes this can just feel like I'm, I'm just putting myself in victim mode and I'm not acting in my life um, if I'm really embracing these principles. And um, he made the distinction that this is not a lack of commitment. We, we need to have commitment to our work, to our, our relationships, to our vision in life, to our um, spiritual practice you know, to the things that are important to us. So this is not a principle of non-action. This isn't go lay on your couch, right? This isn't go lay on your couch and do nothing and just throw your hands up in the air. Yes. Yeah. But it's one of the big paradoxes of life that I think we all struggle with on some level is how do we get into deep acceptance of what is, acceptance of our lives, seeing the world the way it is, and still hold on to moving toward the unmet desires of our hearts or the things we want to accomplish in life. It feels paradoxical at times. And so that's why this is so hard to do. 
we, we, most of us think in these dualistic ways and we think it's one or the other, but the trick is embodying both of those stances at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Anything, anything left uh, on this one for you, Anthony? No, love it. Uh, let's get into the third one. Cause that's, okay. the, that's an exciting one. So why don't you start us off? The third one, suffering ends when we let go of our attachment, our grasping, our manipulation of the world. Um, Anthony, tell us more about how we're gonna how we're gonna put this all into practice, and and uh, we're just gonna now no longer suffer. So Jack talk distinguishes be, the between the differences of pain and suffering. So in the second noble truth, suffering has to do with grasping or attachment to form those kinds of things, uh, Eckhart Tolle would say, uh, ego, individual and collective ego. The way out of suffering is understanding that pain and suffering is different. And to while we still live with intentionality, while we still are thoughtful in our responses to things, we aren't driven by reactions to things. And... um, and we experience life with a sense of curiosity and surrender. So um, there are several different uh, resources to help people. There's a fantastic program on Insight uh, by David uh, Gandelman called Letting Go of Attachment um, that is a kind of a meditation app that goes through and talks about disattachment. Um, Eckhart Tolle spends quite a bit of time uh, under helping and teaching people to understand that our being is is the is the the being that recognizes the voice in our head, but we aren't our voice in our head. So our voice in our head, that continuously streaming voice that's grasping and with attachment to form and ego and so forth, that that is what brings us to suffering and grasping what this third noble truth would say is with a sense of curiosity, we recognize that we're experiencing pain. We recognize that we're experiencing frustration. And then we uh, surrender into that experience with curiosity and disattachment to figure out what are the origins of the pain and what can we learn from this? And what is my response going to be instead of my reaction and so forth? So, I, I love this idea of, of thoughtfulness and mindfulness and, and recognizing that suffering is a, can be a, a choice as we, as we disattach, as we, uh, that doesn't mean that we're not intentional, but as we're disattached to the grasping, um, we can have just a much better, much less suffering, thoughtful, life with curiosity while Jana's talking about this dualistic experience that we're intentional we 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 strive and we measure progress but we're but we're not considering our worth or our valueness or our value or our our relationship with god or or our experience of pain as all enmeshed in this sense of grasping and attachment to form yeah. Jen, any thoughts there? Yeah. Um, I, I think this is, you know, Anthony mentioned mindfulness, and I think this is such a key to this. Um, Jack Cornfield talks a lot about, puts it in terms of nirvana, 
Um, we often think about that being as something that's so beyond us, it's lifetimes away. Um, and yet we can all experience nirvana or heaven or whatever, whatever you want to talk about that state of peace. We can experience that any time at any day of any day, regardless of circumstance. I mean, that's kind of the idea of this is that if we are just willing to let go, be in the present moment, be in that present moment specifically without judgment, but just acceptance, pure acceptance of what it is, um, that, you know, disattachment. And then allowing our, uh, our Buddha nature, our big heart, our true self, that, that which is, you know, deeply attached to love, that piece of us that has never been hurt. Um, if we allow that to, uh, our awareness of that to come forward, then um, that's where that peace and freedom and end of suffering comes. Um, and it's within our grasp. It's within our ability to do that at any given time. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, who was instrumental in bringing a lot of these ideas into the medical field um, from the East, and the people he worked with, would tell the people that he, um, he worked with people who were chronically in pain, in chronic pain or, or terminally ill, and he would say, you know, if you're breathing in this moment, there's more right with you than is wrong with you. <laughs> um, and so that's another one that I think about from time to time when I feel like everything is falling apart. I'm, I'm still breathing. I'm still here. What really is the problem in this given moment? And 99.999% of my life is spent in a, in, a, in a state that actually is okay. And most of what's going on that's wrong is in my, my head. It's in my worry, it's in my anxiety, it's in my worries for the future, it's in my regrets of the past. But if you can come to the present moment, that's where nirvana lies. That's the end of suffering. Yeah, man. Um, I, I like this point because it is, it is the keystone, right? Like it's this idea that, that, okay, we've talked about we suffer. Okay, we talked about how to be a better person in the world and to move through it and, and to have all these right ways of doing things or these wise ways of doing things. But it really does come down to every moment you experience is a present moment. You, you don't experience a past moment. You don't experience a future moment. You're always in the present. And when you sit and just, you know, again, like, as you're saying, like we don't, we don't just uh, do nothing. We, we're, we're still moving through the world, trying to accomplish things, trying to create a better world and try to create a better us. It's not nihilistic. Um, and I think there is the temptation here for people to go that direction when they realize like, okay, suffering happens, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I can change some things, but most things I really can't change. And if I'm supposed to just accept the world as it is, then none of it really matters. And so why, who cares? But for those of us who think it does matter and we do care, um, learning to just be present with the world unfolding before you, whether it hurts or whether it feels good, um, is the secret to becoming a more whole self. And I was thinking of kind of like, how, how could the audience relate to this? And I was thinking about when I was a kid, riding my bike and I'd fall off and I'd scratch my leg. And my first reaction is to cry or, or to hold my leg and sit there for a while. But at some point you just get up and you move on, right? Like your leg's still scratched, but now you go play with your friends again, or you go do something else. And uh, at some point, maybe when you've got time to think about it, you'll, you'll sit there and think about, oh my goodness, how much this hurts and what should I do? But the reality is that most of the time, we sooner or later figure out how to just move on 
you know, maybe we've got a, a parent who's terminally ill and we're yelling and screaming at God or we're, or we're trying to rush around and get, get some kind of medical solution to the problem. Maybe there just isn't. And eventually at some point you just have to sit with it, um, whether you're handling it well or not, because it's just going to happen. The world is just going to unfold in front of you. Uh, any other thoughts here? Like, I don't feel like there's a ton to talk about because that's going to come. Um, but Anthony, please. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, Bill, about the intersection that we have in some of these principles with other thought leaders. You know, I, I think of this third noble truth. I think of uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he, where he writes about the experience of living in a Jewish uh, concentration camp uh, during the Holocaust and and that relates to this third noble truth i think about the teachings attributed to the jesus of the gospels so with the parable of of the sheep and the goats jesus um teaches with this parable that if we um feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick and the imprisoned and give drink to the thirsty and 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 clothe the naked and so forth if we do these things we are part of the kingdom of God in, in that present moment. And, and that doesn't insulate us from seeing the pain in others. That doesn't insulate us from experiencing pain ourselves. But we live with intentionality in the present moment and, and serving others. And there are other examples. In Jewish traditions, you know, there's... The, the story of Job, that he experiences all these different uh, pains in his life. And most biblical st scholars, uh, to my understanding, would, would say that the, the story of Job is a metaphor for the Jewish people of, uh, and for Israel, um, as that they experience pain and what is their choice and their response to pain. It's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, for, so there's all this intersection of these different ideas and thought leaders as how we end suffering uh, without necessarily um, not having this transactional relationship where we think that God is going to relieve uh, pain uh, from experience, being experienced in our lives. Yeah, no, no, no. And and I'm sorry for those who don't aren't watching. I was just the three of us are seeing this video, but the audio come out. My wife just came in to give me a kiss goodbye. So I did miss some of what you were saying, Anthony, but I 100% agree with what I did catch. Um, yeah, so as we're going to get into uh, the next set of presentations, we'll kind of dive into how we learn to sit with all this stuff. And so the fourth noble truth to kind of close out what we're what we're hitting on, it is this eightfold path that he talked about in episode one. It is this eightfold path that is the it's the it's it is the gate, and then again, it's the path itself that leads to kind of us being able to be at peace with ourselves. Like as I've, um, I'm almost always still getting this wrong. And I understand how it works now. And so there are these moments, never used to be, there are these moments where I now am able to sit with something, examine it without going down the, the track of what I used to do to handle that disturbance. I sit with it. I think about it. I go like, hey, what's the other person's perspective? What's going on here? It really is this idea of these, these wise ways in which you interact with the world. And, and by wise, it just means you now see something you didn't see before. 
You now feel something you didn't feel before. You now have these pauses that were never there before. And you're now able to kind of interact with the world very differently than you used to. Just the other night, I've done this. I, I, my wife uh, does this thing. This thing annoys me. It causes this disturbance inside. And I would always then lash out in some way as to get this all to go back to the way it was. And, and just the other night, I'm sitting there with it. I start to lash out. I, I cause the same problem I've caused in the past. And, but then usually I just move on with my life until it comes up again. And then I do it again. This time for several hours, I just sat in this meditation of what does she feel like when I'm doing this to her? Like I have my own disturbance and I'm trying to resolve it, but by resolving it, I'm causing this huge disturbance in her. And so I just sat for hours with what does that feel like on her end? Oh, I bet it feels like this and it's not good. And suddenly now I have this awareness that will now allow me the next time this comes up to handle the situation very differently. Um, maybe talk for a moment because we're obviously going to get into what Jack thinks and we'll, we'll share lots of our thoughts and hopefully some of those are insightful. But as we close off with the four noble truths, the fourth one being that the eightfold path is the way to achieve the cessation of suffering. Would each of you maybe share an example or two from your own lives where this has been so key to how you now show up in the world so that people can get a taste for how this will work so as to get them excited about what's coming, if that makes sense. Either of your thoughts? I want to, I want to hear what Jana has to say first. <laughs> I'm thinking through. <laughs> I'm thinking through a couple of different examples um, of how this shows up for me. I, I can go first if you want. I mean, I can yeah. share another one, um, get you guys maybe thinking. Um, my wife is, um, I'm a very, uh, and maybe this is hard for you two to believe. I'm actually very quiet. I'm very introverted. When I go to a gathering, especially if that gathering gets big, I tend to just sit in the background and kind of watch people. And if someone wants to come sit next to me and hold my hand or sit next to me and talk to me, I welcome it, but I'm not going to go find it. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, is much more of an extrovert. She's a people person. She is. She talks uh, fast and, and louder than me, faster than me. And um, she's a little more chaotic from my point of view. I don't mean it in like she's unhealthy and she's doing something wrong. It's just she shows up human differently and her showing up human sometimes feels chaotic to me and it it bothers me sometimes. And so I remember I remember one night um, six months ago or so, we're sitting in a hot tub with friends and she's being her human self. And normally where I would have been poked and would have been like, hey, baby, we're being too loud or, you know, those kinds of things that are a shitty way in which you, we interact with our partners. Um, instead, I just sat there. And I did this whole like eightfold thing. Like I, I understood what was the wise way in which to enter the world here. I understood that the disturbance is internal to me. I understood that my ego was that my, sorry, my ego was something separate than me. So I, I kind of perceive my ego as like this little ball of energy that sits off to the side and I can hear his advice. I can hear what he's telling me, but he doesn't get to, he get in these situations. He doesn't get to be part of this. He gets to stay over here. And I just sat in the hot tub and smiled ear to ear because I was so proud of myself for just like, like, wow, I got this. I, I did it once here. Like I'm always failing at it. Here's this moment. I'm, I, I'm getting it. 
And, uh, and I just left her be, I let her be her. I let her show up in the world the way she wanted to show up in the world. And I didn't have any need in that moment uh, to actually act out and manipulate her into doing something different. And, and I, these kinds of things are now happening weekly, whereas they never happened. Um, does that bring up anything for you guys? So I, I, I'm, I'm wish I'm, I keep grasping for trying to find a, a good single example of this, but it's eluding me at the moment, but thinking about just in general, how this has shown up for me, one major way it has shown up for me is in the way that I parent. I mean, when I was a, a parent, my kids are teenagers now, when they were young, I mean, I was so attached to how these kids were going to be <laughs> because I was very attached to the way I was going to be. And that, you know, I was that parent that was going to do it all right. And my kids were going to just be amazing. And they were never going to be having the tantrums in public. And they were never going to be, you know, going against what I wanted because I was going to do it all right. And I had it all figured out. And, um, you know, amazingly, life doesn't work that way. <laughs> kids obviously have their ways of, of showing up in ways that we don't love all the time. Um, but I really thought a lot of that was under my control. What I've noticed as I've started to learn these, these principles is when my, my kids are pushing back, when my kids are exerting themselves in ways that actually are very developmentally appropriate. Like, I'm really glad you don't want the kid that doesn't do this. <laughs> like, I'm very glad that my, my, um, my kids have this will within them. But how I react to a, a child saying, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do my chores. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to get off the Xbox. I don't, you know, all of those things that are natural for a child rather than getting upset with them and trying to explain to them and trying to, now I just commiserate with them. And it doesn't mean I, they don't have to do the thing. They still have to do the thing. But my approach is very, very different. I'm not trying to get them to want to do the chore. I'm like, yeah, this sucks. I know. I wish we didn't have to do these things every flipping day of our lives. <laughs> so much of our lives is are these things that are monotonous and we don't want to do. I feel that with you. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to suffer? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> wouldn't that be fantastic <laughs> if we never had to do a dish? Yeah. That would be awesome. Um but it's, it's getting into companioning them where they are. And um, so having teenagers actually has been much less painful, I think, uh, now than if it had been the way it was. Because I'm not so worried about it. They're, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to do things that I would rather they didn't do. They're going to have attitudes. But letting go, letting go of the, the need, because my need for them to be different is making both of us miserable. Um, one of the things that yeah. Jack Hornfield says is yeah. true, true love doesn't demand that things are different from the way they are. Mm. It's actually opening up a way for me to show up for my people and love them and myself when I'm letting go of needing any of us to be different than what we are. Do you hear that listeners? Your need for things to be different is causing you and everyone else pain and suffering. <laughs> Um, and, and it doesn't need to be right. Like we can, it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean we stop doing something. We just don't act out 
of a need for the world to be different. We act trying to make a better world, um, but not requiring anything to happen in this moment other than what is. Uh, and that really is a shift in thinking that will make a, a huge difference. Anthony, any thoughts from you? Yeah. So first I want to read something that Jack wrote about this, and then I have two examples to share. So when he, in referring to the fourth noble truth, uh, he writes uh, in book, The Wise Heart, this path is called the middle way. The middle way invites us to find peace wherever we are here and now. By neither grasping nor resisting life, we can find weak wakefulness and freedom in the midst of our joys and sorrows. Following the middle path, we establish integrity, we learn to quiet the mind, and we learn to see wisdom. So I thought that was helpful the way he parsed it there. Mm, so, yeah. the, so the first example is um, uh, r- related to my experience of a faith transition uh, from a very high demand fundamentalist faith, uh, black and white binary construct to uh, where I am now. Um, my wife is still uh, a nuanced, active, believing member of the faith tradition that I once was. And a tremendous amount of my sense of difficulty or suffering uh, as I've worked to transition towards this way of this middle way of the following the fourth noble truth has been pain that results from this differentiation of beliefs and a sense of perception of what values are and what it means to sustain things and and things like that and so so the the middle way or the application of this fourth noble truth would be if if my wife is participating in something or holds a particular view or value in something that causes a significant sense of pain or suffering for me the middle way response would be first to get really curious about where is this emotion coming from? What is this attachment to form? What is this grasping that is causing this sense of suffering or pain in my life? And to get curious about what is the origin of that? Why is this causing me so much disturbance? As well as getting curious as to why is she making the choices that she's making and how does that feed her and and what can I do to support her in things that feed her and help her grow and thrive, even if those things would result in a sense of suffering or grasping or attachment to form with me? And so this first example is these, these, the Eightfold Path and this practice of the middle way can help us to have a sense of intentionality and curiosity and actual freedom from suffering as we increase our capacity to live with differentiation of beliefs and values and and so forth. So I think a lot of the listeners might be able to consider what are the kinds of things in terms of personal relationships that, that trigger a lot of sense of suffering in their lives. And it might be related into very significant differentiations of political belief or philosophical belief or sense of values or religious belief and so forth. And and the Eightfold Path, the reason this is so helpful for people in second half of life using Richard Rohr or, or in stage four and five faith uh, in, in terms of the stages of faith or however you want to uh, call it is 
is these are practices that give us freedom from the sense of suffering because with curiosity we can try to figure out where the sense of grief or suffering or pain is coming from and and sit with it and and establish more integrity and and learn to quiet our mind and see wisdom and things so that's the first experience the second experience in terms of this uh, fourth noble truth or eightfold path um, relates to uh, kind of an acceptance behavior uh, therapy model um, I'm a financial advisor and I've been a financial advisor for about 30 years now and so I've had clients through uh, through uh, the dot-com bubble burst and the recession that happened after that 20 years ago uh, after September 11th I've had clients live through all sorts of different huge swings in the markets, including the financial crisis that happened a little bit more than 10 years ago. And one of the strategies that we developed early on was in t with intentionality to be able to answer the questions that keep us up at night so we don't have to worry about them anymore. And so, for example, during the financial crisis, um, people would get all worried about what happens if the dollar loses all its value and we have anarchy or hyperinflation or whatever, stuff like that. So the discussion that we would have is, it, let's say that happens, what are you going to do about it? And so we would answer the question, you know, maybe they would try to find a place up in the mountains so they could cut down trees so they had firewood so they could hunt for food and maybe there was a water source. And I'm like, okay, Let's allocate some of your resources. You'll buy a hailed out camper. You'll buy a small lot up in the woods. And now if all that stuff happens, you don't have to worry about it anymore because we've already answered the question. What is the worst case scenario? We've answered the question. So um, to apply that towards other things, there are things that happen in our life where we have attachment to form. We have this attachment to uh, grasping of what we think things need to look like in order for us to have peace and stability in our lives. And we're experiencing suffering because we're unsure of what those things are going to happen. And if our constructs are unhealthy, we might perceive that we're subject to the whims of a capricious God that is with prosperity gospel or testing us or, you know, a Job kind of experience that we're going to have all these things and we feel very unsettled. So one application of this fourth noble truth is to answer the question, what, what would we do if, if we have a child that is faced with very difficult situations and might make some choices that we feel that would be very painful if they make that choice? Part of this middle way path is to go ahead and answer the question. If that child makes that choice, what would we do? and answer the question. And if the child makes a different choice, what would we do? So with thoughtfulness and mindfulness, we answer the question that keeps us up at night and we know what our response is gonna be so we can thoughtfully and mindfully go forward instead of live with this sense of grasping and anxiety and suffering that really isn't necessary because we can develop these habits uh, to end suffering in our lives. I love it. Um, as you guys are talking about attachment and, and there was something, I don't remember what it was, Janet, but there was something you said that kind of stirred this in me. There's this idea that another word that goes along with attachment is possession. And we, we often think we own to some degree on the first half of life. We think we own the people around us. They are our thing. Mm -hmm. 
So these are my children. This is my wife. And anytime that these children or this wife who belong to me make me uncomfortable, I have some right to um, reach out into the world <clears throat> and make it known that I'm disturbed and it's your job, children and wife, because you belong to me, to change what you're doing so that I can be okay again. And what you two are speaking to is that you stop seeing people around you as possessions. They are human beings just like you, and they have a right to their uh, world. They have a right to their humanity. They have a right to um, their needs and wants and desires and all those things just as much as you do. And so what you two are speaking of is you let go of this attachment and I can't remember which one of you guys said it, but you said like, I'm even, I'm even showing up in ways, I think it was you, Jenny, I'm showing up in ways that I'm allowing myself to be uncomfortable. We're to that point. Um, my wife and me, my kids, I am encouraging them now to show up in the world in ways that I know are going to cause disturbances in me, but that's my inner work. It's not theirs. It's not my job to rein in what they're doing so that I can be okay inside. My job is to help them be the best humans they can be. And sometimes that means it's going to cause more inner work for me. And so I think as folks continue to listen to these, I think more of these instances, because I think we really almost have to hear it once or see it once before we can kind of really sit with like, oh, like I see it for the first time here in my own life. And, and I think when we start to just show up and let people also be them as the world's unfolding, their world's inf unfolding in front of them, just as your world's unfolding in front of you. When you let them be them and encourage them to be their best selves and make space for them to just show up as they are, you're also inviting more opportunities to sit with your own disturbances. And, and when you start doing that intentionally, I think then you know you're doing something right, like you're on the path. When you start inviting something to now be upset inside of you and you wish for just a moment it was different and now you start to just allow it to be yeah. anything else yeah go ahead yeah I, I i think about that i love that bill and um i think it also extends beyond just our small circle to the rest of the world of creation i mean this is this is the hope right and how often do i treat other people especially the people i don't know the person on the freeway that's doing something i don't like you know i'm treating them like they're objects like they're not they're not they're not even human to me so much of the time and um i have an i it relationship with them rather than an i thou relationship. Um, and when we can get into more of an I-thou relationship with the world, um, it completely changes how we interact with it. And so that's that's another trick that I use throughout my days when I'm when I can when I find myself disturbed, very often I can think to myself, Am I who am I treating as an object right now? <laughs> what circumstance am I trying to fight against? And how can I get into an I-thou relationship with the world around me? Yeah. yeah. And you and you guys hit it too. Like the pain's going to continue. Jack, you know, I think Matthew, you brought this up. The Jack said that, you know, pain will come and go, but your suffering will end, right? When, when you take this approach in any present moment. And so pain isn't going to go away. Bad things are still going to happen. 
things are still going to hurt. Um, but you don't have to be attached to that and you can just let it be. Um, so I, I think, I think both of you for having these conversations, cause I, I think these are life changing when people start to really get the concept that's being spoken of and the ways in which we can begin to kind of end that suffering and just be present in any given moment. Uh, any other thoughts here before we close out the episode? Appreciate both of you. Uh, anything here that needs to be said before we, uh, before I let both of you guys go. No? no. Awesome. Then uh, look forward to next week. Hopefully Brittany can uh, join us again for, for episode three and uh, we'll get into that then. Thanks so much guys for the conversation this morning. This is, this is big stuff for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.